The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning. Welcome in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's try something. I'm going to say, and Jared tried this, I'm going to say, Christ is risen. And you're going to respond. There we go. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ has risen. Amen. That is why we gather this morning. In fact, that's why we gather every first day of the week. But it's appropriate this time of year that we gather with Christians from around the world and we say, Christ is risen. There you go. Welcome to all of you in the name of Jesus, the one who is risen. If you're visiting with us, we're happy that you're here. Let us get to know you a little bit afterwards. Don't let us be shy, even if you are, because Christ is risen. And we must say something about that. We've been in the book of Acts And we're going to continue this Sunday morning. So if you open up your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter 17. A sermon series on the Spirit-powered church. But in Acts 17, beginning in verse 16, the word of the Lord says this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue, And with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They, They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, uh, of the Areopagus, where they said to him, "May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean." All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So Paul stood up in the meeting and he said, Men of Athens, I see that everywhere you are very religious. For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now what you worship as unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, but he himself gives all people life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of people, that they should inhabit the whole earth. 
And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that everyone would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all people by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, said, we want to hear from you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Let's pray. Father, for your word. As always, each and every week, we give you thanks, for it is our life. For it is in your word that we read your witnesses who testified to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so today, as we encounter your resurrected word again, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to follow, give us lives and wills to obey. And as always, Lord, I pray for the gift of preaching. In the name of Jesus Christ, you're a resurrected one. Amen. Paul is greatly distressed by all the idols he sees. Paul is greatly disturbed by how people have constructed the world and how they've ordered reality. And so what Paul does is he this practice, he goes around to the synagogues and he begins talking with people. And he goes into the marketplace and he begins talking with people. And he's talking with God-fearing Jews, I mean with God-fearing Greeks and with Jews. And he's having a discussion, which is a religious discussion about who God is and about how the world works. And as Paul always does, the topic or the event of the resurrection comes up for Paul in these discussions. And so some philosophers catch wind of this. And they want a word with them. Because you see, when you start speaking of resurrection, when you start talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is no longer religious speech. but speech that challenges reality, reorients how we see the earth and the sky, our neighbors and our enemies. It is speech that challenges and reorients, reorients how we see even our own bodies and our lives. For Paul, 
The resurrection of Jesus frames everything for him. If you look at the, the conversation he has with the philosophers, when they take him up to Mars Hill, which Brett and myself and my wife Kim and Rick and Bev Geyer will be there in about a week and a half, standing on the very place where Paul had this conversation. If you see the beginning of the conversation, it begins with resurrection. Some of them, these Epicureans and Stoics, some of them ask, what is this babbler trying to say? While others seem to say, well, maybe he's advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus' resurrection. And it ends in verse 32 with this. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some sneered. And others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. For Paul, it begins with resurrection and it ends with resurrection. This is what orients Paul's world. And for Paul, there is a difference in the way we order the world and the way God orders the world. For there is a way that we construct reality and the way we view the world, and then there's a difference for the what God intends for the world. We tend to say, this is the way it is. And God says, no, this is the way it is and the way it will be. When my wife Kim first came to visit Oklahoma, my wife's from Vancouver, Washington, up in the Pacific Northwest. She'd never been to Oklahoma, so it was one December, uh, Kim and I were getting pretty serious, and I thought, well, she needs to meet my parents. And so we flew her down, and she spent Christmas with our family. This is before we got married. So I went and picked her up at the airport at Will Rogers, and we're driving back. Remember, it's December, and we're driving back, and we're talking and having a conversation, and we're somewhere on uh, the Kilpatrick Turnpike, and she says, I've got a question. I go, what's that? Why is the grass brown? I said, what? The grass. Why is it brown? <laughs> I go, what do you mean, why is it brown? Grass is supposed to be green. All of your grass is brown. I said, honey, this is, this is normal. The grass is, it's, it's not, it's, it's just dormant. See, in, in Oklahoma, in, in the fall and in the, the winter, it goes dormant. And then in the spring, it's green again. She's like, grass is not supposed to be brown. That's not the way it's supposed to be. To which later, I got her back because she ordered seafood at a steak restaurant. And I said, you're not supposed to order seafood in Oklahoma. You're not supposed to get a foolish fish filet in Oklahoma. You're probably not supposed to get a fish filet anywhere, but regardless, she's from the state of Washington. You know what that state's called? The Evergreen State. The grass is hardly ever brown there. But my response to her was this. This is normal for everybody else, Kim. You live in a very special place. 
this is the way the world is. And she goes, no. That's not the way grass is supposed to be. Jane Lofman read earlier from 1 Corinthians where it talks about, uses this imagery of Jesus being the first fruits from among the dead. And I think that imagery for us doesn't really resonate because most of us are not farmers. Some of us probably in here are farmers, but I haven't really, I farmed a little bit, but nothing more like gardening. But if you're a farmer, and let's say you have a, an, an orchard full of oranges, the farmer is always interested in the first fruit that's ripe and ready to be picked. Because when he finally sees the orange, that's that first orange that's ready, and he picks it, he's always very interested to see. And he peels off the orange, and he tastes it. And when that orange is good and sweet and just right, he knows, she knows that it's going to be a, a fantastic harvest. But for those of us that aren't farmers, the farmer runs back with the orange and says, the first fruit is great. It's going to be a great harvest. It's going to be a great day. It's going to be a great year. And he sees everything that is out there differently. But you and I walk out and we pick the, the orange that's not quite ripe yet. And we taste it and we're like, no, this is not good. He goes, you don't understand. You have to taste the first fruit because all of those other ones that aren't ready yet, they're going to be like this one. That's what Paul, I think, means by the first fruit. Because we see the orchard and the grass. This is the way it is. This is the way the world is. But Paul, because of the re resurrection, says, no, no, no. That's not the way it is. Jesus has risen from the grave. He is the first fruit among the dead. He is God's intention for the world, both now and in the future. It's the difference in how we construct the world. We construct the world one way as human beings, and God, he constructs the world completely differently. Take creation, for example, the world. My son Noah, he's going to be a philosopher or a theologian one day because he always asks the deepest questions, and they're always at bedtime. Dad, why are we alive? Which is a prime moment to answer the question, but I'm like, go to bed, quit asking those questions, I'm ready to go to bed. Actually, no, I don't ever do that. But it's not odd for Noah to ask this question, Dad, why is there so much suffering in the world? It's a pretty tough question for 9 o'clock at night when it's bedtime. And the temptation for all of us, because to answer that question, it's the trillion dollar question. But the temptation for all of us is to say this. I don't know. It's just the way the world is. And what we tend to do is 
with poverty, with illness, cancer, sickness, with violence in the world. We're kind of left. It's just the way the world is. And maybe part of that temptation comes out of our own sense that that God, that we live kind of in a closed system where poverty and sickness and violence, that's just the way it is. And that God doesn't really break into that system, but he's, he lives in boxes that we've created for him. So we do this all the time, right? We live in a, the physical world, and God is concerned with the spiritual world, and we, we divide those two worlds up. Even if we might not say it like that, we live like that. We live as if God is concerned or deals in the spiritual and we're just left with the physical, left up to ourselves. But for Paul, God has reframed the world through the resurrection. In verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples or in boxes built by humans. Rather, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. I've probably told this story a number of times, but I can't help myself. It's the story I think of. When we lived in Uganda, we started digging water wells because clean water was a real issue for people living in rural communities. It was something they asked us about, and we didn't at first, we said, ah, that's not why we came. We came for spiritual things. We didn't say that, but you know how that goes. And then finally we go, okay, yeah, we we came to, to dig water wells. And we started digging water wells, and then when people would ask us, they got they got involved and donated money, and, and when we go back to the United States, people were very interested. And, and so they'd ask us the question about why do you dig water wells? And we didn't have a good answer at first. And, but many people would come to us and say, you're brilliant. You take care of their physical needs. That way you can address their spiritual needs. And we thought, uh, I don't, that sounds like a bait and switch. I mean, We're not just trying to care for your physical needs so we can tell you the important stuff like we would tell people important about Jesus. That didn't seem right. And then people say, "What? so is it just humanitarian? I'm like, no, it's not just to be a good human being. Until one day it hit us. When someone asked us, why did you drill water wells? The answer was what? The answer to that question was because one day God's going to make all water clean. so we want to begin with that right now. Yeah, but want the water get dirty again? Yes, but when Jesus healed the sick, they got sick again. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he died again. But these were signs pointing to God's preferred present. This is the way that this is what God prefers in the world, and it is for sure his promised future. One day, God is going to make all water clean. So how come we're not involved in that right now? 
This is God's preferred present. And God's promised future. So the resurrection changes how we view the world. It changes our view of God's engagement with the world. And therefore, our engagement with the world. The resurrection reframes the world according to God because he declares that in the resurrection of Jesus that he, that he has a preference for the way the world should be and there is a promise for the way the world will be one day. That's what the resurrection promises. The resurrection also, there's a difference between how the resurrection views the world how the resurrection views other people in our lives and how we view other people or other bodies. We tend to construct the world like this. We construct the world by dividing us, them. Friends, enemies, same, different. We construct a world where their other is a threat Someone that's different is a threat to us and needs to be avoided or maybe even neutralized. We need to neutralize them. It causes us to fear or to ignore. It causes us to hate. When I walked in this morning, I didn't even know the news. Maybe you haven't heard it either. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in Sri Lanka this morning, there are bombings at several churches, and over 200 people died this morning at Easter service in Sri Lanka. That's how we construct the world. And in your life and my life, it may not include the kind of violence that's this morning, but we're always tempted, us and them, same and different, friend and enemy. But God reframes the world, and the resurrection reframes how Paul sees the world. Verse 26 and 27, for through one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. Brian Stevenson tells a story. We just had Brian Stevenson on campus at Oklahoma Christian University where I work. And Brian Stevenson is, is uh, beginning, has begun a project to remember all African Americans who were lynched in the United States. I think post, post slavery. And one of the beautiful images that he's doing is he's asking people and relatives of those who were lynched to go to the sites or just anyone to go to sites where they know lynchings occurred and to gather up dirt and to and put them in large jars and then they'll put the name of that person and the place, and they're putting them on the wall in the museum. 
that he's creating. And he tells a story of a woman, an African-American woman, who went to a place where one of her ancestors was lynched. And she went there and she wanted to be alone, and it was a pretty remote place off the side of the road in the deep south. She was there by herself, and it's a very emotional moment digging up the dirt where her ancestor had been lynched. And then she hears a pickup truck drive up, and it drives up very slowly. And she tries to ignore it at first, but then it stops right on the road right beside her. And she looks up, and there's a white man sitting in the pickup truck. And the white man in the pickup truck, the first thing he said to her is, what are you doing here? She's digging the dirt where her ancestor was lynched by a white person. And a white man rolls up in a pickup truck, and they're all alone. And his first question is, what are you doing here? She said, my heart began to race, and I said, well, I'm here because one of my ancestors was lynched here by a mob of white people decades ago. And I'm collecting this dirt in this jar to take for a museum where they're trying to honor those that were lynched. He says, the man just stared at her for a second. Then he opened his door and started to get out of his car and walk towards her. She said she was scared to death. She was alone on the side of a road with a man that, by all appearances, didn't seem that friendly. And as he walked towards her and she began to back up, he stopped in the place where she was digging and he got down on his knees and he started digging in the dirt with his hands and filling his hands up and putting it in the jar over and over and over again until the jar was full. He says, I'm sorry about your ancestor. I hope this helps. The resurrection changes how we view other bodies. It changes our view of where we all come from and where we are all going. The resurrection reframes the world according to God because he declares in the resurrection of Jesus that all of those other bodies that are strange to you and to me, they are from God and they are for God. There's also a difference in the way we construct our world about our own lives and the way God thinks about our lives and constructs our lives. I construct my own life. I'm going to confess to you that even despite what I've been told in church and what I've been told by my family and what I've been told, what I read in scripture, it is very difficult to be an American 
and not to think that you don't make yourself. It's one thing to say, I don't make myself. It's another thing to live that way. We tell students all the time, I said it's very difficult at Oklahoma Christian because, and we struggle with this, because we say, trust God, trust God with your future, God will provide, and then out of the next breath out of our mouth, we're like, well, you better get your stuff together. You better make sure your resume's good. Better make sure you have that internship. Better get good grades. They're not going to hire you if you don't do it. And when I tell students that, they're like, that's exactly what we feel. And we don't know how to think about it. We think our bodies and our lives are for our ourselves. I have rights. I'm supposed to construct a world of happiness. I'm supposed to construct a world of freedom. I'm supposed to construct my own life. It is in my hands. But for Paul, God has reframed the world to the resurrection. Verse 28, Paul says, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Shane Claiborne wrote a book several years back called Irresistible Revolution. It was more than several years back. One of the things he talks about is that he, in this book, is that he went on a journey to find what a Christian really looked like. And so he got into Frank Sant Frank St. Francis of Assisi and some of those early monks and church fathers and they end up leading him to there's, there's nobody more Christian that lives out this than Mother Teresa. So he says he actually figured out how to contact her and wrote her a letter but didn't hear back. Then he, then he found out he knew somebody in a Catholic order that had connections and knew where the number for where Mother Teresa lived and worked and they he said, well, call her. So he figured I need to call at 2 a.m. And he calls, and the voice says, hello. And he says, hi, my name is Shane Claiborne. I live in the United States. I, can I talk to Mother Teresa? And the voice on the other line says, this is she. He was like, Mother Teresa actually answered the phone. And he ended up going and spending four months working with Mother Teresa. He said, I want to come over for four months. He goes, wow, that's a long time. And he goes, or maybe four weeks or four days, just any time. She goes, no, we'll take care of it. You come for the whole summer. So he went the whole summer. And he says, what inspired him the most, although Mother Teresa was incredible, that experience of being with her and the kind of faith she had, there was a German guy there named Andy and he writes about Andy that he had been there about 10 years, longer than most of the nuns who were there. He wasn't ordained. He was just a guy. And that he lived in the house where all the people were dying. He attended to the dying. That was his work. And he said he was a pretty crass man who would often curse and the nuns wouldn't know what to do with it. But he was committed to these people. 
And one day, Andy shared with Shane his story. See, Andy was a wealthy businessman that lived in Germany. And he said one day, he thought, I'm going to read the gospel. I'm going to read the gospel that I find in the Bible. And he says, after I read the gospel, it messed everything up. Because I read about Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, and it messed everything up. Because right then, I sold everything I had, I gave it away, and I moved to Calcutta. And one day, I want to go back and visit my mom before she dies. But then I'm coming back here, and this is where I'm going to spend my days. The resurrection changes how we view our lives. It changes our view of the source of our lives and their purpose. Our lives are not from ourselves. Our lives are not for ourselves. And you don't have to sell everything and move to Calcutta. But the resurrection reframes the world according to God because he declares in the resurrection that our lives, our bodies, are from God and they are for God. That's how the resurrection reframes the world. And then this is Paul's whole point when he talks to the Stoics and the Epicureans. Verse 31, he says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world by justice, by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Elsewhere, it says this is how you view the world. When Jesus showed up, this is how you construct the world. This is how human beings construct the world. When Jesus shows up in the world, you killed him. But God, God raised him from the dead. That's how God reconstructs the world. And he says, and he's going to judge the world with justice, and he's going to judge it with righteousness, and here is God's judgment. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. Here is God's judgment of you and I and the entire world of the entire universe. God's judgment is unequivocally this, resurrection. When God judges the world, he says, let it come to life. And he's given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. So then he says this, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or some stone. An image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So here's the question. Here is the question on this Easter Sunday for all of us. Why do you still view the world that this is just the way it is. 
Why are you constructing worlds of stone? Why are you constructing worlds of gold or silver? Those things don't give life. In other words, why are you still constructing the world around death? Paul says, repent, change. Because God has judged the world, and his judgment is resurrection. Paul is greatly disturbed that the city is full of idols. Paul is greatly disturbed that our lives, that we've constructed our lives our own way. Of how we think the world works, of how we think about our enemies and our neighbors, of how we think about our own lives. Paul is disturbed by how we've constructed the world. And to speak of the resurrection, when you talk of the resurrection, that's no longer religious speech. But speech that challenges reality, reorients reorients how we see the earth and the sky, heaven and earth, our neighbors and our enemies, and yes, our own bodies, our own lives. It is speech that evokes a decision. And this decision, you can either laugh or listen. You can either leave or draw near to the resurrected body. It's either his resurrected body or your stones. It is a decision. Will you construct the world or will God? Because God has judged the world and his judgment is this, resurrection. Let's stand and sing.